Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 6, Yellow Fever. Let's get this show on the road. I am so sad that I didn't actually get to watch Yellow Fever with you. After watching it, I really felt like this 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 could have easily been one of those like watch together ones. Like, it, you know, what it reminds me of it reminds me of Bad Day at Black Rock, was it? Where it's just kind of like it's a lot of iconic moments that I'm sure are going to come back. Like I've seen a bunch of these moments, not because I remember. I don't, I don't think I saw this episode in the original airing of it. I've just seen so many gifts. <laughs> I've seen gifts of the cat. I've seen gifts of the Yorkie. Like at this point, my bingo card of like gifts that I see regularly, I'm really just missing the pudding. <laughs> We're not that far from the pudding, actually, interestingly. Oh, very exciting. We are even closer to the recap. Well, you better count me down. Three, two, one, go. Cold open on Dean running for his life for something horrifying, which we find out is an adorable little puppy with a bow in its hair. This episode's off to a crazy start, and I still have no idea what the title means. Boys are investigating some sort of weird case of people dying from, like, fear, and they're not really sure what's going on, and then it turns out it's a disease from a ghost, which is the weirdest thing I've ever heard, but I love it. But, of course, it infects people who might kind of be, like, dicks, maybe? So Dean gets infected and not Sam, which I think is telling of something. It starts off with little anxieties and gets worse until eventual full-out fear to the point where he can't even do his job anymore. And then Bobby, who can speak Japanese, it turns out, has to come help Sam. And they eventually scare the ghost to death and save Dean from going back to hell time. That's exactly what happens in this episode. This is a bonkers episode. Again, for so many reasons, is it just like, I can already tell how iconic it is. And that was even before some of those iconic moments that I now know about have come to fruition. I think what's also really interesting about it is that it just, it's a bit of a palate cleanser after the very intense beginning of the season, shall we say. Even the fact that it comes after a pretty clean episode with episode five's uh, monster movie, this kind of like really like nicely did the same thing where it was like a fun episode, but it still had its intensity and it still had its like deeper meaning, especially towards the end with Dean, which we'll get into. Speaking of getting into it, uh, let's go to the long game. What do we have to know about this episode? Perfect. So I assume that we're going to be talking about this a little bit more, but I'm pretty sure that we can add Linus to the list of men that Dean has flirted with. Oh, hardcore flirting, yes. Okay, thank you. It's really nice to have, like, you know, a man be like, um, yeah, that was flirting. Like, I think there's always a level of me that whenever Dean interacts with, like, a cute guy, I kind of, like, go into an analytical mode because I'm expecting it. Only because it doesn't happen often that when there's even the slightest change to his, like, body language and the way he speaks and just his mannerisms, it becomes really obvious really fast. The thing with Dean is that we don't see him flustered around women, but we see him flustered around men. Like here with Linus, he's like, like looking for his pocket and he's like, you're awesome. And like, we don't see him like that around women. I think it's that level of confidence that he puts on when he's hitting on women that he's wearing that like, as you talked about last week, kind of that mask of machismo that around men, he doesn't really have that. 
but the feelings are still there. So it's like almost the same way he acts whenever a woman kind of puts him in his place. Like when Bella says, oh, we should just have sex after this. And he's like, I don't know how to respond because this is making me feel ways. And I don't have feelings. This is him with men in general. That I like this idea that basically when the mask comes off, like you see Dean just kind of enjoying flirtation, whether that's with men or women. There you go. So I want to highlight also in this episode that there's Dean laughing at some sort of sexual innuendo about a softball team. I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay, you keep bringing up the softball thing. This is not me asking for details. This is just me just reminding you and our listeners that I'm very aware that softball means something and I want this to pay off and I'm betting it won't pay off till like season 12. This one is a little bit off because it's softball instead of baseball. I'm also sports illiterate enough to go like, those are the same thing, except you throw the ball differently, I think. Don't say that to my my softball playing friends. (laughs) You would have a lot of angry women. (laughs) No, no one heard that. No, there you go. All right. The other thing that I noticed was the sheriff using hand sanitizer. Uh, You know, like in huge amounts. And the thing is, you know, we are living in a pandemic. Of course, this was funny in 2008 and it really made him look paranoid. But in 2022, it just seems like good common sense. Good for you, Sheriff. (laughs) Clean those hands. I think the fact that he does it like twice, like he literally washes his hands, shakes their hands and immediately washes his hands again, I think still gives us that little like, tip over into, ooh, he's being a little excessive. Like, you're right, it loses some of the sting this episode in the modern age. Drew, when was the last time you shook someone's hand? That is a very good point. I'll shut up. Don't shake hands anymore. That's gone. (laughs) There's no such thing anymore. Now, we're getting into some juicy details. And yes, juicier than Dean flirting with Linus. We find out that Dean remembers his time in hell. Some of those, like weird like flashbacky moments he has like i wonder how much of it is him repressing it versus him just lying outright there were other moments where he had those flashbacks in the first few episodes this season but we quote unquote didn't know what they were at the time then when they happened my thought process was like bits of that memory leaking back to him so this sort of had like a perfect flow to it learning what we learn about it now is just like a lot more intense So let's keep that in mind as we move forward in this episode, but also in this season. So there's also another mention of a heart in this episode, and this time it's Lilith telling Dean that he knows why he was infected and that he should listen to his heart. Yeah, I feel like Dean's heart just can't get a break this episode. This season in general and this series. I mean, this episode alone, we have like the the whole like Lilith trying to convince him his heart's going to blow up. We have this mention of heart. I mean, literally, he gets infected by the dead body when the doctor literally hands him the heart. Hearts mean stuff. Hearts are a metaphor often. (laughs) And for Dean, it's a metaphor for pain. Everything is a metaphor for pain for Dean. Everything is a metaphor for pain in the show. We digress. Shall we continue? We're so jaded already today. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what's happening? Sassy us today. Let's move on to some happier things where I want to talk about a few iconic moments in this episode, because you mentioned the Yorkie. Okay, so I'm just going to add. So the thing with the Yorkie is that we're, we laugh about it and it's funny, ha ha ha. But it's also really troubling because 
what he's remembering and what he's afraid of is the Hellhounds. It plays off of that level of fear of like, we know that there is a very real fear of dogs or in this case, the Hellhounds, which I think translates to dogs in general. It's comedic in the sense that it's clearly sort of little dog. It doesn't stop from driving that point home of like, we now know Dean has a legitimate fear of dogs. And that's kind of interesting because later in the in the series, there's this talk about Dean not liking dogs. It's never really explained. And I always thought that it was strange because Dean seems like the kind of guy who would like dogs. But then I'm like, oh, he was ripped to shreds by dogs. Okay, yeah, makes sense that he wouldn't like them all that much. Which is, uh, you know what, like a very interesting and well thought out character arc, which is kind of interesting. Like Then there's also, you know, Sam and Dean debating which one of them is a dick. I figured that would come back or at least be uh, well beloved by the fans because I thought it was a very interesting and fun moment. Dean screaming at the cat, you know, oh, that was scary. I've seen that TikTok. I've seen that meme. I've seen that gift that was like, <laughs> again, it was one of the ones I knew was coming. And like, I think even as they started like doing that, like exploring of the mill, I was like, ah, I know where this is going. And then this whole speech about, you know, who does that? Crazy people! <laughs> <laughs> that entire monologue had me so off. I was dying. That was so good. It was just like such a vivid depiction of like the hidden moments of their life on the road. You know, like the waitress with the weird rash and like Sam getting gassy after burritos. Like it's what you would expect to happen if you live on the road, I guess. It's so interesting because I think when you talk about fears and even in this episode where the fears are kind of like forced upon him in like an excessive way, they still have to hold some level of truth. It just says so much about Dean. I love it. I agree. And then there is finally Jensen's lip syncing of Eye of the Tiger. Oh, I was not prepared for that. No one was prepared. No one, no one, no one was prepared to watch that ever. That was like legitimately that mo like the episode ended and then that came up and I was like, what's happening? The show has <laughs> never done this before. Also, just pure coincidence, like our Discord blew up with like gifs and memes about Eye of the Tiger the next day. That is so true. That's exactly what happened. And I was I, the worst part is, well, no, the best part about this is that I kept thinking, I am so happy that you've watched this episode and that you know what we're referring to. Like more and more, you start getting the references. <laughs> the, the thing is, like, we have this meme channel, like for anyone who's not part of our Discord. And a lot of times the memes get spoiler tagged. And I've kind of learned that, like, they don't really spoil much. They just may have a character I don't know. So, like, I've seen these jokes that are funny. But I just don't know who this other character in the joke is, even though the joke's about Sam Dean or Cass. So I'm like, I can't wait to get more context to these. And then there's some that just plain don't make sense because I don't know who the character is yet. That's why on Tumblr, people always say Supernatural has a gift for everything. Literally. I've even seen that be a meme recently on that our meme channel. Yes, exactly. All right. Now that we've rounded up our long game, I think it's time we head over to story time. Oh, I think it is. So this week, it looks like we've decided that our theme is anxiety, and given the monster of the week and the setting of this episode, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, we decided to go with a bit of an obvious one this week, but one that I think we're going to have a lot of, I was going to say fun, but a, lo a lot to talk about, let's put it that way. Speaking of which, do you want to start us off with Sam? 
Yeah, let's start us off with Sam in the context of the Crossroads choice. So what is the main choice that Sam makes in this episode that affects the outcome? I think for Sam, when you look at this episode, his anxiety really seems to stem from his lack of control. Because we see him consistently trying to like regain control over situations. And it shows those little moments when he's like getting spleen juice all over his face and like he's having to take his shoes off to get into the sheriff's office and he's like super annoyed by that. Or when he's trying to manage like Dean's anxiety while trying to solve the case. And then I think the biggest one is having to watch Dean fall victim to the ghost sickness. My goodness, that must bring back some memories of season three where Dean was slowly heading towards his death. Only this time it's happening over 48 hours instead of a year. I think that the choice that he makes is calling Bobby. He basically realizes that he doesn't have the knowledge or the resources to keep Dean safe and to to be able to solve this. And so he's like, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to ask for help. Which honestly is just such a sad move to make. It's the smart move. It's the right move. Honestly, like it's one of those times where the choice is really not controversial. It really is like this was the right thing to do. Smart boy. What I really appreciated about this is that not only did Bobby help, but he also showed up. And I think that this is just such like a lovely and really poignant contrast to John Sam spent half of season one calling John for help and he never showed up, whereas Bobby did. Bobby is best dad. Bobby is best dad. Like, I didn't even put that together, but it's so true how if you compare, I mean, like, we can compare Bobby and John all day, but like, my God, Bobby shows up. Bobby is there for them. Bobby's a good dad. This is little as Bobby was in this episode. And I mean, he's in it for like, what, like a third of it, maybe a quarter. Like, he really gets to shine in this episode in a lot of little ways. I thought he was just so wonderful. You know, when I kind of put that together, it made me appreciate him even more for the little bit that he's in there, because I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is what Sam always wanted John to do, to just come when he needed his help. Just be there. So for Sam, I feel like, again, that choice to call Bobby, it comes from a level of anxiety that I think is just a little more subconscious than just seeing what he's seeing. In the end, Sam kind of always has, you know, Big Brother Dean to back him up. Even when he tries or does go at things alone, it never goes without the knowledge of Dean being out there somewhere. Sam is never really alone. Like, even when he is alone, there's always the looming presence of Dean could show up at any moment. Even when Dean was in hell, I think there was some level of, like, I'm going to get him back, so I'll always have that power. But this time, he realizes he's kind of alone, and it's really evident when they first visit the mill. This is really why he had to call Bobby, because Sam's not okay being alone, not having someone to back him up. You know, he needed a he needed he needed a player two or, you know, big brother player one. You know what I mean? To call in Bobby. You know what you're saying sort of brings up something for me in the sense that, like, this is probably the first time that Sam really had to hunt and care for Dean. Because Dean just wasn't himself, right? He wasn't able to care for himself or to, to, to protect himself the way that he usually would. And here you have like a caretaker role that's been swapped. So you've got Sam taking care of Dean and Sam very healthily, I would say, realizing that he can't do that alone and asking for help. And very healthily, the person that he's asking help from is offering the help. 
I don't want to call it a role reversal because I feel like it's so minute by comparison. It's almost like a role reversal where Sam is now the one protecting Dean, whereas they grew up the other way around. And at this point, Dean feels a bit like a child in the fact that he's so scared of things that he's basically like having like a six year old around at this point. Like, I'll hold the flashlight. I don't want to go near a gun. A cat jumping out of a locker spooked him, even though they were fully prepared for it. And then that moment, as soon as Sam's like, I think I figured it out. And Dean's like halfway down the street already. Sam is so annoyed. <laughs> but that is such a big brother energy coming off Sam right there. I know. Annoyed I know. at your little brother for running away from you when you expected him to be there behind you. And I understand that, like, you know, Sam taking care of Dean for one episode really doesn't equal the balance, you know, in the balance of Dean taking care of Sam for a good part of his life. But I think it's just kind of interesting for the viewer to to have a to get a glimpse into what that would look like or what that does look like, actually. I thought it was a really fun twist on their dynamic. And it puts Dean in an uncomfortable place, obviously, because he's the one being you know, affected by this. But it puts Sam in a I wouldn't say equally, but pretty heavy, uncomfortable place, having to take over the role of the protector and again, being the smart one to be able to say, hey, I need a hand, Bobby, can you? Exactly. So I feel like we've like lingered into Dean territory a lot in our conversation about Sam. So do we want to just jump into Dean right away? If we're going back to like anxiety, I think for him, it's obvious, like obviously a little more obvious, right? Like it's directly related to the ghost sickness. It's, it's there, it's front and center. It's very apparent. So I think it's just kind of important for us to scratch at that just a little bit. Because there is more to it, you know, like we talked about just a little bit earlier about the dogs and the hellhounds. You know, we've talked about it. He's anxious about everything. The teenagers, the pets, the heights, uh, left turns with oncoming traffic. And those are all things that Dean wouldn't usually be anxious about. But as we get closer to like his death deadline, if we can call it that, we also get closer to like the heart huh, of Dean's anxiety, Right, it gets closer to the heart of Dean's anxiety. And that's when he starts hallucinating the hellhounds, cue the Yorkie, and the hallucinations start to get worse the next morning when he's hallucinating the hellhounds at his door. Now, I'm not sure that I have the timeline right here, but anyway, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse and like gets to stuff that he's truly, truly afraid of. So like it starts with like teenagers, which is like stuff that he's not really afraid of. And then it gets to like the hellhounds, which arguably is something that he's very afraid of. And then boom, it culminates with Lilith being in the motel room. So he's clearly very scared of Lilith. So for me, the realization, and you pointed it really well here, is that the initial fears that Dean is feeling, the teenagers, the heights and all that stuff, are very like regular people fears. They're not the things he's afraid of that he, Dean, are afraid of, which are what really is going back to hell. When you think about the moment where he officially lost and was sent to hell, the thing looming over him was Lilith and a bunch of invisible hellhounds. These are the things that truly are synonymous with his greatest fear, which is going back to hell. I think hell is the heart of the issue here. Again, heart. I'm so sorry. It just, I keep, I keep hearing and seeing it everywhere. Okay, sorry, sorry, it's sorry. It's so good. <laughs> I'm going to try to answer this my own way without giving too much away, if that makes sense. Lilith is pointing to something that Dean has repressed. You know, look into your heart. You'll see. Heart again. And 
from the clues that are in this episode, we can basically assume that it has something to do with his time in hell and him using fear as a weapon. And I think that his choice here, and I put choice in big quotation marks, is to repress those memories, or at the very least not talking about them and lying to Sam about not remembering, and about what the ghost sickness actually made him see, because he doesn't tell Sam what he saw at the end of the episode. You know, and it's such a weird lie, because, you know, to say it was Lil Nellhounds, it was, I guess, would be him admitting that he does have fears, which he doesn't want to do. But also, I think the more evident one, given the little flash of yellow we see in Sam's eyes, is a new fear or a fear he didn't really want to bring up at all, which is, I think, the bigger one. You know, the fact that even his lie isn't just, oh, I saw the hellhounds because that would be obvious. He has to lie. He has to show off that he isn't afraid anymore. It's the mask coming back on, right? Interesting that the mask comes off when he's scared because that's when he's flirting with Linus. And then the mask comes back on. I'll kill anything. I'll hunt anything. I'll shoot whatever. As soon as like he's no longer feeling anxious. That's so interesting. Ah. (laughs) There's one last fear we did not bring up, which I think is incredibly telling of Dean. And it's it's another choice he makes. He physically makes this choice. You covered the highs and lows of Dean's fear is what I would say. Or this ghost sickness. But there's one, I guess, middle-level fear. He's too afraid to eat a donut. Okay, I'm listening. Sam hands Dean the donuts. Dean, without looking, chucks them in the car. And we see, like, they linger on Sam to show us how shocked he is by this. That his brother would would be denied himself a delicious treat. We've discussed countless times Dean's relationship with food and how, to him, having it is synonymous with comfort and safety and yet here, when he would ass- we would assume he needs it most, facing all these fears and he can't even be bothered to look. And then, of course, the next scene and that, well, that same scene, the end of that scene, he sits down and picks up the bag. He looks inside, freezes and chooses not to take one. He second guesses himself, closes the bag and almost seems disappointed in himself for not taking one. I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear what you think first about this. So what does this say about Dean? Well, there's a couple of things. To me, it could be both. So there's the whole, like, some people don't eat when they're anxious. Some people eat when they're anxious, but some people don't eat, especially people who are usually, I would say, food motivated. I know that some of those people really, when there's anxiety or stress, like eating is going to become much more difficult. I know that for me, sometimes that tends to happen. So like if I, if I'm in a moment of particular stress, like I just, I, I won't be able to eat because food won't seem appetizing to me. And kind of like that, ugh, that Dean kind of makes when he looks at the donuts, like that's exactly how I feel. But I think that there's also the possibility that like, he's afraid that fatty foods are going to clog up his arteries. Like, you know, and that sounds silly, but I think that there, there could be that too, right? Again, with the heart. If we can break story for a second, I think that's more of the idea of the writers. Like, I think I'm doing one of those, like, it was a simple throwaway thing for the writers, but we're now analyzing it because it means more. To me, it shows that even while infected, he is still all there. The sickness is not stopping Dean from being Dean. Uh, You know, we can see him react to his own fears and know it's not his true self, at least not until the real hallucinations of Hellhounds and Lilith show up. But in the moment, he sees something he knows will give him comfort and realizes right then and there, they won't. They've lost the magic in the moment, and it hurts him. Like meeting your hero, only for them to turn to be a dick. 
So basically you're saying that what he usually gets us comfort from food, he knows is not going to work because he's infected with some magical ghost sickness. And that makes him sad. It's like he's weirdly able to look at it from the meta level and knows they won't do what they're supposed to do. So he'd rather not, you know, like give the sickness the satisfaction of taking away Donut's magical powers. Oh, I hate this. I hate this so much. <laughs> I wrote this the other day before going grocery shopping and I went out and I bought a donut. <laughs> yes, of course you should. And, you know, this is... I hope he got himself a donut after this. <laughs> he deserves a donut. Good for you, Dean. Yes. Is there anything else in this episode where... Uh, or is there any other moment in this episode where the theme of anxiety shows up that we haven't quite discussed yet? My first thought was to look at Bobby, but Bobby is surprisingly cool and collected this entire episode. He never shows it. And I think that almost goes a very long way in just the importance of how important it can be when you are anxious or when you're afraid to have someone sturdy by your side. And Bobby is very clearly the rock for this episode. I hadn't even thought about Bobby <laughs> because just like you, I didn't see him as anxious. But now that I'm now that we're talking about him. I'm reminded that in future episodes, when hunters need his help, he tends to help mostly with lore, and he helps them from afar. But here he physically went to see the boys, and I think, I think that's where we see a manifestation of his anxiety. Oh, I didn't think of it that way. That's beautiful. Oh, Bobby! Best dad. Best dad. Now that I've broken your heart, I do have something else. Because we've talked about it a little bit. We've talked about Dean's anxiety kind of like removing his ma like macho mask, especially when it comes to Linus. But there's also, there's another way of looking at this, and I'm kind of wondering what you think about it. The ghost sickness made Dean anxious about everything, but not flirting with Linus, which you would think might have made him anxious. But I would argue, I think the way he does the flirting is very much that, like, it it feels like what you would see, like, a kid on the playground do when they're a little too nervous to say, I like you, and they just want to, like, get attention. Okay. Like, I, like, I think the next step would have been, like, as he was leaving, he would have, like, thrown a pen or a spitball at Linus, like, the oh. that, that, that trope <laughs> of, like, you know, bothering the person you have a crush on, like... It very much felt like that. Like there was anxiety there about yeah. doing it, which there wouldn't be normally. It's true. He did have sweaty palms when that happened, but I always chalked it up to him being anxious about faking to be an FBI agent. Um, but it could have been that too. I, you're absolutely right. I'm just now picturing little little Dean on the schoolyard hitting on boys. Oh, all right. Well, you know, let's let's uh, let's move on to critical time for now. Who was behind this episode? I really enjoy it and I want to give them kudos. So this episode was directed by Phil Scritchia and written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin. I just want to say that Andrew Dabb is going to be a showrunner in later seasons, and he kicked off his tenure on Supernatural with an episode that is now very well loved, and we'll talk about this a little later, but was apparently very controversial when it was first aired. And I feel like if that doesn't describe Andrew Dabb to a T... <laughs> I don't know what does. I think this is only the second time we've met someone in the writing directing combo team who will later go on to be a showrunner like this. 
No, it's technically this, the, the third time because we've met Sarah Gamble, we've met Jeremy Carver, and now we've met Andrew Dabb. Through the 15 seasons, all uh, one, two, three, four, four showrunners were involved like as early as the first four seasons. And that is interesting. It's kind of nice to see that they've all sort of had their, you know, fingers in the pie this early and have a taste for what the show is, but then getting to see how their era does things their way. I know the Carver era, if I'm not mistaken, is beloved by most. It's very angsty. So if anything, it's probably one era that I have trouble with, but not because it's angsty, but just because I feel like, oh my God, just give them a break. (laughs) (laughs) I think that defines this entire show to a T. I know the Sarah Gamble era is less beloved, but I'll be very curious to know what the Dab era has for us. The Dab era is probably the most controversial. Okay, so we have controversial, controversial, and thoroughly disliked. Great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, again. Well, one one thing we're sure not to dislike is your lore for this week. My heart skips a beat. With every crack of a branch or rustling of leaves, I know these woods. I lived by them for years. I've camped here. I've made friends here. I kissed my first boy here. These are my woods. Why do they sound different today? Why is it so cold tonight? It's the middle of summer break. I'm still in swim trunks. I should not be able to see my own breath. What was that? Okay. That wasn't a branch. I hear you. Come out and show yourself. Actually, no. On second thought, don't. Stay hidden, please. I'm just going to hurry the heck and get the hell home. Nope. Nope. I'm ignoring that. I don't care. Running now. So we finally get to dip into probably my favorite category of the occult lore or spirits, and that is the Japanese yokai. Generally, Japanese spirits uh, that are oftentimes weirdly specific to their own little folklore or history or uh, what they do. They frequently carry traits that we would use to explain away certain things. So a very, very easy example would be the Buruburu, as we are introduced to in this episode through Bobby's uh, Immaculate Japanese. It's depicted as the spiritual ghost of a man or woman, often clinging to the back of someone's collar, causing shivers up and down their spine and the hair on the back of their neck to stand up. So we literally have the common descriptions of what it is to be afraid of something embodied in a spirit to explain why we feel those ways. And to top this very fun lore segment off with another fun fact, Buruburu is actually the Japanese onomatopoeia for when someone is shivering or cold, the same way you and I in English would use burr. If that's not the most Japanese thing I've ever heard, I don't know what is. That's amazing. I love it. Absolutely love it. I truly hope we get more Japanese spirits. Yokais in general are like, If it gives anyone an idea, there was a competitor to Pokemon several years ago that almost got really big in Japan and then kind of faded away as Pokemon kind of regained popularity, where every single one of the adorable creatures was just a yokai from Japanese legend made into a cartoon character. If you really dig into it, there are a lot of Pokemon based off yokai, but there's a little more of like a stretching of it or Americanizing of it or like distancing it from its like very core beliefs. Whereas yokais on their own were already so unbelievable and plentiful and fun and interesting that they didn't need to be changed, per se, to become popular among literal children. Oh, that's amazing. This feels very like campfire stories 
I know that this should terrify me because it's literally a thing that makes you be afraid, but like, it just feels like homely in some way. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> That's kind of the weird thing with yokai in general. Like even the ones that seem like they should be more terrifying because they're like very specific stories or very like there's usually a very clear like why you be attacked by one, how you stop one. And they're like this one are very designed to explain away certain feelings like I will not go into detail because it is surprisingly R rated. But there is one that explains why you get a stuffy nose. I don't want to know that. Nope, I'm good. Well, like literally, why do I wake up with a stuffy nose? Here's the reason. Why do I wake up with like, you know, a little like crusties in my eyes? There's a yokai for that. It's like weirdly a yokai for everything. And some are weirdly specific. They often like are objects that get old enough that they gain consciousness and they become evil. There are some horrifying ones, but so many are just silly and fun and like wholesome. And I mean, now that we know that Bobby speaks Japanese. Hopefully more. I'm just saying I hope for more. They are so much fun. Speaking of fun, hopefully you have something fun to share with us this week. Oh, I don't know if it's fun. (laughs) Oh, let's hear it anyways. But I do want to talk about the title of the episode. Ah. (laughs) You're like, ah, yes. (laughs) I had always assumed that it was titled Yellow Fever because paranoia was a symptom of, you know, quote unquote, medical yellow fever, the virus. But no. I looked into that, and here are the main symptoms for yellow fever. You get fever, chills, uh, severe headache, back pain, general body aches, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, and weakness. The reason why I'm going to go into depth about that is because I want to kind of see really what medical yellow fever does so that we can then compare it to this episode. There's a a reason for behind the madness. 15% 15% of people who contract yellow fever end up developing what's, what is referred to as severe symptoms, like high fever, jaundice, bleeding, especially from the GI tract, so definitely not fun stuff, and eventually shock and failure of many organs. About 20 to 50% of those people will die. Now, I just want to reassure everybody, There's a very effective vaccine available for it. So if you're planning a trip in a part of the world where the virus is endemic, meaning that it's naturally present in the population, you can protect yourself with a vaccine. And just as an aside, the way that people contract yellow fever is from mosquito bites from infected mosquitoes. Now that we know all of this, why would they call this episode yellow fever when it has nothing to do with the actual virus? And unless I'm missing something... The only answer is the racist one. Did they call it yellow fever because buruburus are Asian in origin? Because if that's the case, I honestly don't really have anything else to say than do better. First of all, love the research you put into this. Thank you. I am now even more afraid of mosquitoes. Lord, I hate those things. And if I had one wish, it would be to get rid of all of them, uh, which scientists have proven would have virtually zero effect on the uh, you know Earth's biome. So... They literally provide nothing for nobody in no way, no how. Sorry, off track, hate mosquitoes. I went on a really weird roller coaster with this episode. When I first saw the title, my assumption was this is somehow going to be racist because yellow fever is very often, as you clearly alluded to or mentioned, this uh, habit for white guys to date Asian women and to like serial date Asian women to the point where it's like a problem on dating apps. I've actually uh, read a lot of stories about it. It's the fetishization of Asian women. 
given the show's track record with busty Asian beauties. Really, like, there was a part of me that was trying to figure out, like, before watching the episode, like, how does this relate? But then when we actually got down to it, I had a much more wholesome understanding of the title. Okay. As you were talking, I had a second thought, but my initial thought was just the common expression of being yellow-bellied. Keep in mind that because I'm, I, I'm not a native English speaker, there's a lot of idiomatic expressions that I don't know. But that's why, as soon as you were like, I don't know that one, I'm like, oh my god, okay, so maybe I'm actually onto something here and I'm not just pulling it out of nowhere. So being yellow-bellied is an expression for being cowardly or scared. Like, you, you, like if you were to describe the uh, lion from The Wizard of Oz, I think even in the film, they describe him as being yellow-bellied. Oh my. And he, like, covers up his tummy in, like, response, thinking he, they mean actually. But it's it's a common expression, at least for me, it's very, very common, to be yellow-bellied is to be cowardly. When we finally got into the episode, and as soon as it was like, oh, this is a thing that makes you scared, he's yellow-bellied, it became wholesome to me. You know what? I hate to say it, you're probably right on the racist one. It's because then I wonder why the fever. <laughs> That's why my mind goes that way. If it's, it's, you're going to pull, like, they could have called it yellow-bellied, but they wanted to go with the fact that it was a disease that was affecting people, like, this just feels like if it was not intended to be racist, it was just poor wording and they were just trying to make a pun. I feel like we can never know 100% what the writer room was thinking until someone tells us. I am hard pressed to believe they were probably more likely on the whole, oh, it's an Asian spirit. Let's have fun with that. Honestly, like I'm, I'm totally willing to believe that they didn't mean to do this. But the reality is that that's what a lot of people are going to read into it. So I don't feel too bad for making that assumption. <laughs> if I had to put money down on which of our two guesses was correct, I'm going to go with yours. Unfortunately, so would I. <laughs> Shall we head to the community to see what they have to share with us this week? Certainly. This week, we have a message from Eric Kripke. Excuse me? Obviously, he didn't write to us specifically, but after the episode aired in 2008, fans were very upset that the show implied that Dean was a dick. So much so that Eric Kripke released the following statement. Oh my god, I'm so excited. I've never before responded directly to the fandom's comments about an episode, and I don't plan to make a habit of it, but I couldn't resist dropping in a thought about Yellow Fever, which is, Dean is not a dick. None of the writers or anyone of the creative team of Supernatural think Dean's ever been a dick, past, present, or future. He's a hero. Dean did not contract the ghost sickness because he's a dick. Victims contract the illness because they use fear as a weapon. Dean asks Lilith at the, at the episode's end, Why did I get infected? And she cryptically responds, You know why. Listen to your heart. We as the writers should probably have emphasized this mystery more. I take responsibility for that omission. But the point is, the reason he was infected is because of a secret he's keeping. A dark secret that will be revealed in episode 10. And not at all because of any dickishness implied or otherwise. Thanks, gang. So Drew, I'm going to let you respond first to Mr. Kripke. Well, Mr. Kripke, thank you for writing into the show. We're glad to have a fan like you on board. <laughs> You know what? I'm very divided on this. Tell me about it, because keep in mind, OK, that this is like so we're watching it and we find it funny. But obviously, people who watched it in 2008 did not find it funny. 
tell me how you're you're like reconciling this, knowing that the supernatural fandom can be a little intense. This might be a little bit of the author trying to clean things up after the fact, whether this was actually meant to be better described in the episode and wasn't. And this is sort of them backpedaling, which is what it kind of feels like. I don't dislike it because I think the point he's trying to get across was the whole you're a dick joke was more of a like comedic thing between the brothers and that deep down there is a reason why it was Dean and not Sam affected by this because the reason he gives here for why Dean Dean's hiding a secret so is Sam Sam is full of dark secrets albeit at this very moment less so than Dean for once this seems like one of those like I need an excuse why this is Dean and not Sam and the reason you gave affects both them equally and then now suddenly invalidates the why Dean was infected and not Sam Okay, so I am going to say I hate when I have to defend Eric Kripke, but I will say that when we do find out what the secret is, this will make more sense. And it makes sense why Dean and not Sam. It does, I promise you. So if you can give me that, if that is something you can tell me, then I truly will go back to this letter from Eric and say, wow, it feels weird calling you by his first name. Like that, that was a weird <laughs> moment. <laughs> We're on a first name basis, you know. One day, hashtag goals. Really? Do we want that as a goal? Do we want him to know that? No, no I, I'm good. I'd like to poke his brain for other reasons one day. Ben Edlund. I'd love to meet Ben Edlund. I will cook you dinner, Ben. We will have a wonderful night. I will make some great cocktails. So many activities. <laughs> like, honestly, we could just not talk Supernatural the whole night. I would still just want to hang out with you because you seem like an incredible mind. We're getting so off topic here. But with what you said, Mary, I do see this letter in a slightly different light now, and I'll be intrigued to see that reveal in episode 10 of the season. And you know what? I do, as much as I feel like this might be a case of the fans blowing it out of proportion, to respond to it, it just feels like a proud papa defending his kids a little bit of like, I would never call my son a dick. He may have dickish tendencies, but he's not a dick. He's just... Dark heart sometimes. He's just my dick. You know, you're like, oh, he might be an idiot, but he's my idiot. <laughs> that's that's Bobby with his idiots. I don't really try to think about the reasons why Eric Kripke does what he does. So I'm not going to speculate on that. But I will say that I think it's super fitting that Andrew Dabb's first episode would have fans up in arms about him not liking Dean. Because this is still a popular talking point in some parts of the fandom. I personally like his writing, so I'm not the best person to make the case for him not, likely, not liking Dean. But we have to keep an, op an eye open for this since he's going to stay with the show until season 15. I think it's a sign of a good writer when they can give off the era of not liking one of their characters but keeping them around. A shitty writer can kill a character. A good writer can write a character they don't necessarily agree with. He can't really kill off Dean. You know what I mean? Like Very true. <laughs> I, I am going to say that. <laughs> I will reserve my actual judgment until we reach his his era, but I just know now I am I'm going in with the I'm on Dab's side until further notice, until he's proven to be not good to me. But right now, I like him. We also want to take a moment to say that we have run out of voicemails. So in order for us to keep this segment, uh, we need our listeners to send us three-minute voice recordings to our email, carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording. And we have a few prompts for you. 
So we've seen what Dean's gin dream is. Uh, what would be Sam's? Do you think Sam's demon blood arc is queer coding? Do you think Dean is a dick? Send us your hot takes, your sad takes, and your thoughtful takes. We want them all. So with the questions we've now asked our audience, do we have any reflections or calls to actions for ourselves? I was trying to work questions into there somehow and it didn't really work, but are we ready? Yes, we are. I could not come up with one that was not directly yours. So I had to come up with like a secondary backup-y one, but I want to start with yours first. If you would, if you would do us the honors. It would please me indeed. I want to learn from Sam in this episode because Sam felt like he couldn't do all of it on his own. You know, he couldn't solve the case. He couldn't keep Dean safe and he couldn't save him from the certain death of ghost sickness. And so he asked for help and I'm feeling called to follow his example when I do need help. As you know, that's a tough thing for me. So it's just a, another reminder from Supernatural to ask for help when I need it. I said at the top of this, that's the exact same thing I came up with. I think this episode is such a great reminder of how important it is to find the people around you. You can ask for help, even if you're not sure. Sometimes just asking out loud, you never know who will be able to help and turn to you in a moment of need. I've turned to strangers on the Internet when I need to talk about things. You know, I, I don't feel bad saying I had a pretty rough day today and Doing our show always picks me up, but being able to talk to you a bit before we started the show really helped a lot. So while it wasn't a direct, hey, Mary, I'm having a bad day, I need help. You felt I needed something. You gave it to me, whether it was intentional or just you being you, which I think both are perfectly good. This was a moment I needed help and you gave it to me without even me having to ask. So thank you. You're very, very welcome. So, like I said, I literally had this written down basically verbatim in my notes before uh, seeing that you had written the exact same thing. So I needed a backup and I will go on a weird part of the episode to take my reflection from. But uh, hopefully you can follow this. You know what? I think it's OK to remind ourselves sometimes that it's OK to slow down and take a break. It's OK to use a sick day if you're, you know, in need of it, whether for your physical health or your mental health. It's okay to just spend a day in bed and recharge. You know, it's okay to, like Sam, ask for help. But it's also okay to be silly sometimes. Like, I don't know, starting a super fabulous lip sync to Eye of the Tiger in the middle of a shoot. Ah, oh, Jensen. I know we've both discussed this on the show before. I've been on movie sets, whether they be small productions, big productions, I've been around them. You do have those moments where you've been shooting for hours or things just aren't going right and like you're stressed. And then when someone can break that tension and put a smile on everybody's face, it really helps lighten up that group when you've been there all day. Like, yeah, you you never want to be the one to, like, disrupt the whole shoot. But at the same time, sometimes you need a break. You need a moment of, like, levity to get back into it. I agree. 100%. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigourou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Eric Kripke for his message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios 
or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. I legitimately misread that as you were speaking, and I read, do you think Dean is a duck? (laughs) So, Cass is a cat, Dean is a duck, what is Sam then? He's a moose! (laughs) He's a moose! (laughs) Oh, we have our blooper for the week. I love when I get to a tizzy like this.